listening to another sermon podcast presented by Chelsea Presbyterian Church. Located in Chelsea, Alabama, we value community, fellowship, and love for people from all walks of life. For more information, find us online at www.chelseaprez.org or check us out on Facebook. Good to have everybody here today, and as I said, we've got a, a special guest here today, uh, Dan. As you know, we've been working through uh, first and second uh, Samuel. It's been an exciting study. Uh, Dan is, we've been talking this week, and he was fighting with the same thing that I fight with every week, of taking these lengthy passages and making sure that we get them condensed down to uh, a story that flows and knowing what to leave out and what put in. So, uh, Dan, I appreciate you being here. Initially, I was going to be out of town. Uh, it fell through. And so this is one of the reasons that Dan's here. The second reason he's here is just a great guy. Uh, so, Dan, come on, buddy. I appreciate you being here today. As James uh, said, one of our tasks this morning is to look at a rather lengthy portion of scripture and I'll, I'm just going to tell on your pastor. Initially, he gave me, um, when I said, what do you want me to preach on? He said, 2 Samuel chapters 9 through 20. <laughs> okay, 11 chapters. You know, usually I'm, I might be good for like 11 verses uh, or 11 words. I mean, we really want to go there, but um, uh, we're not going to get that whole thing and we've got a lengthy uh, amount of scripture printed here in your worship folder. We're not going to um, to even read through all of that as well, uh, but but it's there. You can look through it. Uh, we'll start in Second uh, Samuel chapter nine, and it's been my privilege to know James. Uh, it's probably been at least six years, uh, maybe before your church even started. That we've been great friends. Uh, I can tell some great stories about your pastor. Um, he could probably tell some great stories about me, none of which uh, are fit for this place right now. But um, come and uh, ask one of us uh, afterwards, and uh, and we'll tell on each other. So. Uh, if you if you would, let's turn in our worship folders or in your Bible to 2 Samuel chapter 9. That's where we're going to start this morning. And let me pray for us before uh, we read God's Word. Heavenly Father, we just ask that right now you would be at work in our lives. Uh, we thank you for the gift of your Word. We thank you for the gift of this faith family. Lord, uh, exciting to see you calling and drawing new members unto yourself and to be a part of this community. And we ask that you would use this time uh, to do your work in us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So 2 Samuel chapter 9. I'm going to read the whole thing. So we have 13 verses. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? He said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there still, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar, and Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of, David, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, 
For I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that, I sh that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had fifteen sons and twenty servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that the Lord the king commands his servants, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. This is the word of the Lord. Now afterwards, you'll also have to try to say Mephibosheth as many times in a row as possible, just so you know what it's like to, um, to go through that. But, but to review very briefly on what you guys have been uh, working through uh, from last week, remember that God cares not just what we do, but how we do it. The story of the ark with Uzzah, that God comes first, like David dancing like nobody's watching and how that got him in trouble with his wife, and that only God is good, that you know, David was, is this great king, but he has his flaws, and, and today we're going to look a bit more at the life of David the man, and also David the king, and I think one of the strongest evidences that I know of why scripture is true is because of all that it includes. But we're going to read through and talk about some more of the life of David. And, and if I was telling my story, and I'm guessing if you were going to tell your story, you might be a little more selective about what you chose to include or omit from your biography, right? Um, you know, this, for instance, there are some stories in my life where I might give you some partial truth. Like, you know, it is true that at Boy Scout camp one summer, I won the trophy for the biggest fish caught. And I might say that in my story. I might forget to include the fact that I was the only person to submit a fish for the trophy of the biggest fish. In fact, I was so surprised when they gave me the trophy because I had caught this little nine-inch bass on the first day of camp, and I thought, surely, they got my name wrong. Well, you know, when you're one out of one, uh, you're still in first place, right? <laughs> So like Ricky Bobby said, you're either first or you're last, but sometimes you can be both. <laughs> you know, I, I probably wouldn't include a lot of other things in my life. I might selectively forget to include maybe some of the, the disagreements that I've had with my wife. You know, including a very public one while we were both in undergrad and, and we were engaged. And, and she took the engagement ring that I had given her off her finger and threw it across the parking lot. And we spent the next 12 hours trying to find it. <laughs> and we did. Praise God. And we're married. Praise God again. I might selectively take out some of those personal struggles that I've dealt with, those issues of lust or addiction or um, 
you know, the tendency just to micromanage or try to control the people around me because, you know, if I'm writing my story, I want to be seen in the best light as possible. And yet, just like you, I don't get to write my own story. And Scripture is not as selective, the highlights of what happens, but we get the blunt truth, the good and the bad and the ugly. You know, David, if he's writing this in his own power, if he's if he's allowing this to be written, he's going to take that black, you know, uh, not the magic marker. He's going to take that Sharpie and just go through and cross out a lot of these things that we find here in Samuel. But that's not what happens. It really tells us a lot, not just about who David is, but also about who God is. You know, why did God choose David to become king? Was it because he had no other options? Was it because David was just this incredibly great guy and, and, and he couldn't not allow him to be king? Well, the, the truth is that God chose David because he wanted to. You know, the people, as you've, as you've seen before, had essentially chosen for themselves a king in Saul. And why did, why did they choose Saul? Well, he looked like what? He looked like a king. He was head and shoulders taller than everyone else. He looked fierce. He was the guy that you wanted to lead you into battle. He was that guy that you would give allegiance to. He was a mighty warrior, and they were proud of Saul. And what did David look like? Well, he didn't look quite like Saul. He was not ferocious like Saul. In fact, the scripture tells us he was a musician and a poet. He was the youngest of seven brothers. He was an afterthought, even in his own family. And yet God chose him not because he was perfect, but because he was a man who sought after God's heart. Again, he, he loved God, not perfectly, but he pursued God. He was God's chosen king, but he was a real man with some real issues, as, as we're going to see. And so we've got five quick little highlight uh, outline uh, points for you. The selflessness of David, the strength of David, the sin of David the sorrow of David, and then the submission or surrender of David. And so David's selflessness. Now, you might remember that David's best friend in all the world was a man named who? Jonathan. In fact, David and Jonathan had this incredible bond. Uh, today, we would call them ride-or-die besties. You know, my 12-year-old my daughter might say that, right? They, they, were, they were thick as thieves. And it was particularly interesting because of the fact that David had been anointed to be the next king of Israel, even as King Saul was still alive. And, and Jonathan would have normally been, if you think of a monarchy, right, what happens when the king or the queen dies? You know, you don't do a nationwide search to find the next monarch. You don't pour through resumes. You don't look at, at, at different experiences. You just go to the next oldest relative, and that's who you choose. And so David is the best friend of the oldest son of the king. Which means that in normal circumstances, Jonathan would have become the king. And yet, God had already told Saul that his line was going to end right there. He had sent the prophet Samuel to anoint David to become the next king. Now David knew this. Jonathan knew this. Saul knew this. And Saul loved David or, sorry, Saul did initially love David, but Jonathan loved David like a brother. He wasn't jealous of him. 
He cared for him. In fact, his, his dad was trying to kill David at one point, and, and Jonathan helps him escape and to, and to run off into the wilderness and, and keeps him alive. And so we get to this point where David becomes king after Saul and Jonathan and the rest of Saul's sons have been killed. And now he's looking, and, and he's trying to find who is the next person in line. Who is somebody in Saul's family, in Saul's line, that I can find? Now, the, the common wisdom of the day would have been, once you become king, especially uh, if you're not in that royal family, what are you going to do to the rest of the former king's family? You're going to finish them off. And that's exactly what Mephibosheth thinks when he hears that King David is looking for him. He says, hey, who's left in Saul's family? And they say, hey, Mephibosheth. But that's not at all what David is thinking of, is it? We see it right from the beginning. What does he want to do? That I might show kindness to him. A typical king would consolidate power and try to put down a potential rebellion and also to, to send a signal to anybody else, don't mess with me. And yet David, the king after God's own heart, invites Mephibosheth to come and to do what? To eat at his table. He turns him into his own son. Right? He allows him the place where his own sons would sit and eat with him, and he restores his property. And what he's doing is bringing reconciliation into the family of God. David, in a sense, is adopting Mephibosheth. Now, what did Mephibosheth do to deserve this favor from David? He did nothing. In fact, he couldn't even care for himself. He'd been injured when he was a young child, and his, uh, his, his family was under attack, and, and his nanny was, was carrying him, and his legs were broken in that time, and he was never able to walk again. And so David finds not only a member of the family of Jonathan and Saul, but this weak one who could not care for himself and shows them the unmerited favor, the grace and kindness of God. See, in a world, in a time when the strong devoured the weak, David shows mercy and compassion at great personal cost. And he did, like your church strives to do, right? To serve without expectations. Next, we see the strength of David. So in the following chapter, in, in 2 Samuel 10, is an account of David who's going into battle. And, and, and from 2 Samuel 7, we see that God had made a covenant with David. That he's going to bless him. And, and then we see as David leads his men into battle, they are unstoppable. Right? Remember, remember, David is strong and courageous. Even though he was a young child, he was that, that, that young kid who, who defended his family's sheep from lions and bears with a staff and a slingshot. He was the only one foolish enough to raise his hand when they said, who wants to go out and fight that giant? Remember that story? And he goes out, he can't even fit into the armor of the king. He, he, he looks like a shepherd. And he goes out, he's got some stones in his pocket and a sling in his hand, and he defeats this giant. And then they start singing songs about him. His Saul has defeated his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. He's this ferocious warrior with great strength. He defeated the Philistines and the Edomites and the Syrians and the Ammonites. No foe was too great, for the Lord was with him, and the Lord gave victory to David. It says, wherever he went, and his kingdom grew and expanded. But as your pastor shared last week, that there was also going to be a consequence for that. Because David was a king of war, and he had spilled a lot of blood, God wasn't going to let him build his temple. See, God was... Not a God of strength only, 
but a God of shalom, a God of peace. We think of Jesus, and he's called the, the Prince of Peace, the perfect peace of God. And so that's, that's what God is going to use to establish his houses, not on the strength of war, but on the peace of his people. And so in David's strength, as he begins to think that he is responsible for his success, what do we see? The sin of pride. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, we have the account of Bathsheba. And this was in the spring, the time when kings were supposed to go out to war, the Bible tells us. You know, again, kings weren't these people who just sat back in their palaces and they just ate off the spoils of war. The, the king was to lead the men into battle. They were in the front lines. And yet David didn't go. And one spring, instead of going out with his men, he stayed back in his palace. And as often happens to warriors when there is no longer a war to fight, he finds himself in trouble. He looks out off his balcony. He's laying on the couch in the middle of the afternoon. What does that tell you about David? He's gotten a little bit lazy, a little bit soft, we might say. And he's looking out, and he sees a beautiful woman nearby bathing on top of her home, and he says, I've got to have her. And he goes, and he makes arrangements that she would come and be with him. You know, some people try to blame Bathsheba for tempting David, um, saying that, you know, she was partially responsible for this somehow because she never really put up a fight. But you think about the position that she's in, right? You know, he's the king who's killed thousands, and here she is, a defenseless, a defenseless woman. And where is her husband? Oh, he's doing what David was supposed to have done. He's off fighting a battle. And so Bathsheba then later on sends word back to David, hey, guess what, I'm with child. See, this is a big problem. And for Bathsheba, when her husband comes back from war and finds out that she's pregnant, she is liable to face the death penalty. Now, this is a huge issue, and she doesn't know how to deal with it. And we find out that David doesn't really know how to deal with it either. You know, he sends for Bathsheba's husband, he brings him back from war, and he tries to now, have you ever tried to weasel your way out of something without actually having to explain what you did wrong? That's what we find David doing here. Right? He, he brings Uriah, her husband, back for more, and he says, Hey, why don't you, now that you're here, why don't you go and, and, and wash your feet, is what he says. That's, that's the, you know, we call it Netflix and chill. He says, go home and wash your feet. That's a little bit different, but the same, the same idea. Right? Go home and wash your feet. Get yourself, you know, enjoy the comforts of home while you're here before you go out to battle. And Uriah is a man of character, a man of principle, a man who, who couldn't even stand the thought of abandoning his men out on the field. And so instead of going home, he finds himself protecting his king at the entrance of the palace at night. David even tries to get him drunk and does. And even then, Uriah is principled enough to stay there and to, and to stay in the palace before he goes back. And so David continues, right, he's spinning, he's spiraling. We see what happens in our sin, right? What starts off is, is something small. David didn't go out, and then there's something bigger, and then something bigger, and so he's trying to cover this up. And David sends Uriah back to the front lines, carrying his own death sentence unknowingly with him. He's got a message for the commander of the army. When you guys go into the fiercest part of the battle, I want Uriah to be right in the front lines, and then on your command, have everybody pull back, but don't tell Uriah. You know, this is... I don't even know what we'd call this. Second degree, third degree murder, maybe? 
You know, he's not going to pull the trigger, but he's definitely calling the shots. He knows exactly what he's doing. This is one of David's, you read about Uriah in scripture, this is one of his mighty men. You know, one of these people who would do anything for his king, and yet David leaves him out to dry, and Uriah dies. And so what happens is that Bathsheba then is brought back into the palace, mourning her husband. And now David thinks, I've gotten away with everything. Right? At this point in scripture, you can read 2 Samuel 11, we see no sign of remorse. We see no sign of acknowledgement of I've done anything wrong. There's nothing. Until God intervenes. God sends his prophet Nathan, and I'll read this for us, and it's here in your worship folder. The Big 12, halfway down the middle. The Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. He brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. He said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing, because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Can you imagine this? Right, the prophet Nathan, he comes with this story of a shepherd. Do you think that's a coincidence? To come to David with the story of a shepherd? And, and he understands so intimately the life of the poor shepherd, the life of, of the one who has given everything to care for his sheep. And he's so enraged when he hears about what happened that he's ready to kill a man because he took another man's sheep. And that's the moment where the Lord just takes this and turns it right on his head. He says, hey, David, you are the man. Hey, but you didn't just take away sheep, did you? Right? What is, what is David guilty of at this point? Well, let's, let's start to count some of these sloth, lust, adultery, lying, deception, sabotage, murder. You know, going from one to the next to the next, to the next, and, and what started as this small abdication of what he should have been doing has now turned into a murder plot. And so the Lord has to come and intervene in David's life. Remember, this didn't just happen in a day. Think of how long that this sin had been brewing in his life from the point of conception to being with child, to sending for his soldier, to sending him back. And this is weeks, if not months, of thinking that you've gotten away with it, thinking that you could somehow, some way, hide your sin from God. And remember that David was already called a man after God's own heart. He had already made a covenant with God. God had already promised to bless David and his house forever, and yet David still sins. 
Because God's promises to David weren't conditional on perfect obedience. Right? He knew ahead of time what David was going to do. And he still was going to use David in a mighty way. Maybe you've seen those people with the, the bumper stickers riding around that said, if you still sin, you're not saved. Ever seen those before? You got some. Every time I see one, I try to cut that person off and see what they do to me. Um, and then and you kind of kindly remind them that maybe their theology is a little bit mixed up, right? If you think that when you come to Jesus that you become perfect, then you're totally mistaken, right? Your behavior doesn't change overnight to perfection. Now, God may see you and count you as perfectly righteous because of Jesus, but we don't become perfect ourselves. So when we come to Jesus and we submit to him and we acknowledge what he has done for us, he offers forgiveness to us. And his forgiveness isn't conditional on our behavior. It's not conditional on our obedience. It's perfect. It's perfect for the past, what we've done. It's perfect for the present, what we're involved in right now. It's even perfect for the future. That God has forgiven and will forgive anything you've ever done if you trust in Jesus. But just because God has forgiven our sins doesn't mean that he doesn't allow us to experience some of the consequences of our sin. And that's what David is going to experience. And the Bible says that the wages, or the, the payment, the earning of sin is death. And David's going to experience that in a very real way. He's, he is going to receive what he is working towards even though he will be forgiven, even though God is going to, has promised these great things to him, even though the Lord loves David, he's still going to allow David to experience sorrow. You know, sometimes we're sorry for getting caught, and, that, and that's kind of what it looks like here. You know, where David doesn't show any type of, of remorse until after the Lord confronts him. And even then, uh, as, as, as his wife, Things were created by him and for him and through him and to him became flesh and lived amongst us, but he didn't come in strength. He didn't come to be served. He came to serve, to give his life and to, to lay aside his royal robes and to take on the garment of the lowest servant. We needed someone to come in perfect strength. You know, when, when people think of Jesus, they don't often think about strength. In fact, he even called himself gentle and lowly. He's been described, though, as, as meek. When we hear that term, we think of weakness when we hear meekness, but really that means power under control. See, Jesus had power over all things, the wind, the waves, the sickness, mental illness, demons, anything that you could possibly imagine, and he also had power to forgive sins. See, Jesus was perfect in regard to sin. He was tempted in every single way, just like we were, but he never sinned. And also, he was never afraid to associate with sinners, thank God. Jesus was a man of perfect sorrow. He was well acquainted with grief. He mourned at the loss of his friends. He wept over the waywardness of his people. His family called him crazy. His friends thought he was out of his mind. Thousands of people left him. At his most dire moment, his best friends abandoned him, and he's left alone in a garden sweating drops of blood. And in agony, questioning the pain and the process that God had laid out before him. But he was also a man of perfect submission and surrender. Who took on that role of the servant. Who washed his disciples' feet. And after wailing against God and questioning what he was doing, he said this, Not my will, 
but your will be done. So he gave himself up. He allowed himself to be arrested. He allowed himself to be crucified. He didn't put up a fight. He did not defend. He submitted to the words of his father. And through his submission, we conquered. And so did he. So when it was time to enter the battle, Jesus did not delay. He went willingly because he knew what was at stake. Not just his glory, but ours. Not just his future, but yours. See, Jesus laid all of this down for us. Where David failed, Jesus not just succeeded, he triumphed. That each of us, you and I, could be welcomed into that table, that table of fellowship, that table where the sons of the kings and the daughters of the king belong. Won't you pray with me? Gracious Father, you are so good. Lord, we thank you that even in the narrative story of the Old Testament, even as we've seen how your, how your people, these heroes of faith, strived and so often failed, Lord, we thank you that we can see the promise of grace at work through all of Scripture. We thank you that your forgiveness for us is perfect. We thank you that we can come to your table today, not because of the things that we bring, but because of what you have done because of who Jesus is, and because of his blood. We pray this in his name. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed today's sermon. We want to remind our listeners that our doors are always open at Chelsea Presbyterian Church, and we invite all our listeners to join us for worship. You can visit us at 1030 on Sunday mornings at Chelsea Middle School. To hear more of our sermons from our church or for more information, you can find us online at www.chelseapres.org or check us out on Facebook.